Good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all here, and y'all, I sound southern. There's no explanation for that. I don't know. Don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> just glad you guys are here, and glad we can be together to worship the Lord this morning. If you're new with us, thanks for for being here. I'm from Wyoming. I'm not from the South uh, originally, just so you know. And uh, we would love to, to get to know you. Uh, inside the bulletin, there should be a connection card, uh, like Eric probably mentioned. But uh, if, if and when you feel comfortable filling that out, we would just love to know a little bit about you. And you can drop that off in one of those uh, wooden boxes as you, as you head out, uh, either today or next week or whenever. But thank you for being here this morning. Hope you make yourself at home. Um, this morning, we're going to jump back into our series in the, the book of the Bible called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, the author of this book was a man named Luke. Luke was a physician, and he was alive while these events were happening in the first century A.D. And he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, it says, as he wrote down what happened in the lives of Jesus' followers after Jesus' death and resurrection. So what happened after that? Um, And so that's what we're looking at. Uh, at, in this book of Acts, and we've already read about some of the incredible things that happened among those, those first Christians as they began to share life together in Jerusalem, and last time we, we read in Acts 3, 1 to 10, how the apostles Peter and John were walking into the temple in Jerusalem one day to pray, and as they were doing that, uh, they, they saw a street beggar Uh, who everybody in the community knew, and he had been unable to walk his entire life. And for whatever reason, on that day, they were prompted by the Holy Spirit to claim healing over this man in Jesus' name, and and the man was healed fully. And, And so this morning, I want to read that passage again, and then I want us to keep reading a little further to see how Peter and John explained Uh, that miracle and how they were able to do it. And as we work our way through uh, this passage, uh, we're going to see how this shapes the way that we think about supernatural healing today. Um, So before we do that, let's, let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for this, this day that you've made. Thank you for that sunshine. Uh, Thank you for the beauty of your creation, which preaches your glory uh, we, uh, we're, we're here to gather and worship you now, and, and as we open the Bible, we just want to honor you and revere your holy name. Uh, we thank you, God, for your steadfast love, which is unwavering. We thank you for your kindness towards us, your mercy towards us, for grace upon grace that you show us. And uh, we need your help, God. We need your help to trust you and your, your holiness, your power, your wisdom, your ways are too great for our small, small minds to comprehend. And so um, we do not, as, as, as we approach this topic today, we do not totally understand why you choose to physically heal some people in this life and, and not others. And so we ask that you would meet us here in our, um, right where we're at, in our questioning Um, and suffering, and we ask that you would give us supernatural faith in you, and that you'd give us joy in you that eclipses our pain and worries 
that we experience during our life on earth. Please fill us with supernatural hope in Jesus. Um, We confess to you, God, that we are sinful. We confess our need for you to save us, to forgive us for our sin. And we just need your help to change our hearts and to change our minds and to turn from sin every day and to turn to you in faith and to bring our minds in alignment with the truth. And so teach us now, Holy Spirit, please. Give us a new experience of your power today in our presence. And we pray this for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's, if you've got a Bible, let's open up to Acts chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we'll, uh, we'll put it on the screen. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. So we read 1 to 10 last time, and um, we're going to read through 16 today, and then we'll focus on verses 11 to 16. Acts 3, 1 to 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The word of the Lord. We're going to be looking at this passage more next week too, but as we focus on verses 11 to 16 today, the main question I want to ask is, why were the apostles able to heal this man? Or what explanation do Peter and John give for how they were able to heal this man? And the passage gives us four answers. First, 
Peter and John say that they were able to heal this man not because of their own power or piety. Okay. They were able to heal him not because of their own power or piety. So Peter and John want to make it crystal clear to everybody there that they are not superheroes. Okay. They, they were not angels or gods because you see this happening in the book of Acts. As they continue to do this, people begin to worship them as angels or gods. And they're like, get up. We're not angels or gods. Don't worship us, okay? These were just normal guys following Jesus. And Peter also says that his own piety did not help him heal this man. And so piety is a word, it refers to how religious a person is. Or we, we normally think of a pious person as someone who is devout to his or her religion, uh, someone who excels at obeying God. And and think about who Peter's talking to here. He's talking to a crowd of Jewish people who were likely overburdened with religious duties and working hard to be pious. And so it's noteworthy that Peter tells this crowd that his ability to heal this man was not on account of his own piety. Peter's, Peter's not saying it's a bad thing to be pious. It's, it's not a bad thing to be devoted to the Lord at all. Just as long as you understand that the Lord's salvation... And your standing with God is totally separate from your own good works. Okay? It's a good thing to devote yourselves to the Lord and to seek lives of obedience to him. Obviously, he calls us to that. Um, but this gives us at least two important life applications. First, any time that the Lord answers your prayers, you must not attribute it to your own piety. Okay? You must not think that the reason God did what you asked is because you have been so obedient to him. Uh, when God gives us anything good in our lives, we attribute it only to the fact that God is gracious and compassionate toward us, even though we don't deserve it. Um, our good works do not put God in our debt. Okay? God is not required to do anything for us, no matter how good we've acted. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And because every good and perfect gift comes to us from our Father in heaven and not from ourselves, that means that we cannot take any credit for the good gifts in our lives. Uh, our jobs, our families, our homes, our health, these are all gifts to God from us. And we can't, that's why you don't want to take them for granted. And because every good thing in our lives is a gift to us from God, for which we can take no credit, <clears throat> that means we have no grounds to glorify ourselves. We have no grounds to glory in ourselves. Instead, we, we glory in God. We, we glorify Jesus for every good gift that he gives to us. And we seek to steward the things that he's given to us for his glory. The second life application here is that <clears throat> if and when the Lord does not answer your prayers the way that you want him to, then you must not think that it's surely because you are not pious or religious enough. Okay? When God doesn't seem to be responding to your prayers, you shouldn't start blaming yourself, thinking, well, I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't been telling others enough. You know, I've been talking to people about Jesus enough. I haven't, I haven't been praying enough. God must be mad at me. That's why he's not answering my prayers. The gospel of Jesus says that 
none of us are as devout or as put together as we should be. That's why we need Jesus, okay? That's why we need Jesus as our Savior, and that's why we need him as our mediator. It's why salvation in Jesus Christ is only because of God's grace that we receive through faith, okay? Totally apart from our works. And Peter and John here then are very clear in verse 12 that their own power and their own piety are not why this beggar was healed. Okay, second, Peter explains that they were able to heal this man because of who Jesus is. They were able to heal him because of who Jesus is. This healing had nothing to do with who Peter and John were, and it had everything to do with who Jesus is. And the power that Peter and John had to heal, uh, they're saying this was not from themselves. They're saying this is a power outside of ourselves. Uh, this was the power of Jesus at work. And so, so Peter shows the crowd that uh, the one responsible for healing this man is actually Jesus. And this would have been a, kind of a, this would have blown their minds. Because this is the same person that these people had just helped to kill a few months earlier. And, and Peter tells them that this Jesus whom they killed, he was no ordinary man. He's not some sort of magician whom they had at that time. They had lots of magicians. Or he was not some sort of medicine man. Peter says that Jesus, who they killed, is God, but is now back from the dead, and he's still performing miracles through Christians. And in some ways, that would put a healthy fear in that crowd, right? Hopefully, of Jesus. That's a good framework. So he's back, by the way. He's back. And so Peter shows the crowd... Um, that the identity of Jesus is very important. And he uses these epic phrases to describe Jesus. In verses 14 to 15, Peter tells them that Jesus is the holy and righteous author of life. So Peter knows his audience here. He knows who he's speaking to, the Jews. And so he intentionally uses the words that the Jews used to describe God in their own scriptures. And, then, and, and he applies them to Jesus. And so he wants them to see that Jesus is your God. He is the God of the Jews. And Peter says that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. And in saying this, uh, this is an all or nothing claim for Peter. Okay? Holy is a word reserved for God. It means God is in his own category. We don't have really any good words to describe him, we could try. Let's use this word holy to say there's God who's holy and there's everything else, okay? So, so now Peter is saying Jesus is holy. And this is an all or nothing claim because either Jesus truly is God and he truly is the God of the Jews whom the Jews revered so much that they didn't even say his name or Peter is outright blaspheming the one true God of the universe and should be put to death for doing so. So Peter's putting it all on the line and then he keeps going. And he says, Jesus is the author of life. In the, in the Old Testament, God spoke in Isaiah 43, 15, saying, this is what the Lord said, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of, of Israel, your king, 
And Peter is telling us here that Jesus, who died and rose again, is this Lord. That he is the author and creator of Israel. Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. And, and just as Jesus authored everything in creation, so also Jesus used his supernatural creative power to rebuild this lame man's legs so that for the first time in his life, they worked the way they should. There was no natural explanation to explain this. It had to be supernatural. And Jesus' identity, that means who he is, who he really is, could not be of greater importance to you and to me. Because if Jesus truly is the Holy One, the author of life, to whom you and I are accountable, then how should we treat him? <laughs> we ought to cling on to every word that he says, right? We ought to live our lives for his glory and for his honor, because if he, if he is God, then surely he deserves that. But if Jesus is not truly the Holy One of Israel who rose from the dead, then we can't trust anything he ever said. That's what that would mean. And it would also mean that we Christians ought to be pitied for so foolishly trusting in him. That's the way the Apostle Paul puts it. But as we'll continue to see in Peter's speech here, the reason for the hope that Christians have in Jesus is not unfounded or delusional. On the contrary, Peter points out that our faith in Jesus is actually grounded in historical evidence that it's verified by hundreds of ancient white eyewitnesses who saw these hap things happen, and that it's actually affirmed by the ancient scriptures of the Jews. And so Peter capitalizes on this fact, and he pleads with the audience to believe that Jesus is the suffering servant of God. The suffering servant of God. When Peter refers to, this, to Jesus here as the servant of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of their fathers, the Jews knew exactly which servant Peter was referring to. Peter was referring to the suffering servant of God. If you've never heard that phrase, you should know that. That's the suffering servant was the Messiah figure who the prophet Isaiah described in detail 700 years earlier, before Jesus ever came. And Isaiah's ancient description of the coming Messiah was remarkably detailed. It's incredible. And, and uh, let me just read a snippet of one of his prophecies about the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, 2-6. The fascinating thing about this is he writes in the past tense describing Jesus, when actually this happened 700 years before Jesus came, okay? Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, sor our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what an accurate description of the suffering servant, of the suffering Jesus would endure in order to save his people from his sin. So one, one little thing I would say is as you prepare your heart for Easter, which is coming in a few weeks here, this passage, Isaiah 53, would be a great passage in your own time with the Lord to read and to reread and meditate on. Jesus was and is God's suffering servant, he says, who came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus demonstrated this through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, which was for our salvation and for his glory. <clears throat> and then Peter goes on to tell the crowd, he keeps going. He says, Jesus is not only God the Father's servant, but also Jesus is God the Father's glorified and exalted son. In verse 15, Peter tells the crowd, you killed the author of life, whom God then raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Okay? So God the Father glorified Jesus. How did he do that? By raising Jesus. Okay? And he, he raised him in several different ways. God first raised his son Jesus from the dead, physically, from the tomb. And by doing this, he was declaring Jesus is right. Okay? Everybody said Jesus was wrong. They condemned him. They said he was evil. God the Father is saying, no, Jesus is right. And he raised him and he said, Jesus is sinless now. He bore your sin on the cross. He paid for it and he put it to death. And now he is sinless and I'm raising him. And he said, and, and, and because of that, he is now justified in my sight. He's justified in my sight, which means he is not guilty in my sight. He's my son. You guys, this is what you and I need to happen to us. This is what happens when we trust in Jesus, where you, we become united to Jesus through faith. doesn't mean we become Jesus. It means we become united to him so that what happened to him happened to us. We need God to look at us and say, because of what Jesus did for you, you're not guilty of your sin. You're righteous, and you're justified in my sight. Trust in Jesus and ask him to apply that to you, right? Because that's what you and I need. And the father just keeps glorifying his son. He, he raises Jesus up a different way. He raises Jesus into the sky, right? We read that in Acts 1. Yep, Acts 1. And he, uh, he raises him, it says, into the heavens itself physically, and this happened right outside of Jerusalem. And there were a lot of eyewitnesses who saw this. And then the father continues to glorify him. He continues to raise up his son to the highest place in heaven. You see what happened? Jesus came down in his incarnation. When he became a human, he became went down. He was a servant. He was accused. He was punished. He took, went to the cross. He became our sin. He suffered for our sin. He died, and just as he went down, now the Father is raising him up high, 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 high. And he wants us to see this. The Father raises him up to the highest place. You can be raised. He seats him on his heavenly throne where Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God the Father. There is, there is no greater place of authority and peace 
and honor than the right hand of God the Father. And there's no other way the Father could exalt his son more. The, again, this is, we've talked about this before, but Paul created a word here to try to explain how exalted and glorified Jesus is. He said that Jesus, the Father hyper-exalted Jesus. Uber-exalted Jesus. That's the word. After Jesus finished his mission of salvation on earth. And so in all of these ways, Peter makes it crystal clear to this audience, that's what he's trying to do anyway, he wants them to know what he believes about Jesus. That Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the glorified son of God who died and rose again. Jesus is the king of heaven. Jesus is seated on the throne and he's waiting for the appointed time to return to earth for final judgment, just like he said he would. Why does Peter want to do this? Well, obviously he wants God to be glorified, right? And for Jesus to receive glory as he's due. And at the same time, Peter is doing this because he wants these people to experience salvation in Jesus Christ. He wants them to trust in Jesus and to be saved from their sin. And the same is true for you and me. This Bible hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. We must, by by the word that God's given us, learn who Jesus really is so that by God's grace, we might believe in Jesus and, and confess our sin to him and our need for him and tell him that we need you, Jesus, to save, save us and to give us eternal life. And I need you to help me every day, Lord. I need you to help me every day to follow you. The supernatural power which, which Peter drew upon to heal this lame man was not Peter's power. It wasn't John's power. It was Jesus' power. And Peter wants us all to know that this sort of healing is easy for Jesus because of who he is. He's God. All right. Third, Peter explains that he and John were able to heal this man because of their God-given faith in Jesus' name. Okay? Because of their God-given faith in Jesus' name. In verse 16, Peter says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So remember that, that in the Jewish world, your name was something much bigger than a word you just used to get your attention, right? Your name was a, a description of you. And doing something in the name of someone was actively calling on their personhood. It was calling on their power. And so here, Peter, it's clear that the power in Jesus' name is what made this man strong. And then Peter says two times that this power of Jesus came through faith. It was through Peter and John's faith in the power of Jesus' name that this man was given perfect health in the presence of all these eyewitnesses. And so it was necessary for Peter and John to believe in the power of Jesus. It was necessary for them to believe in the power of Jesus' name for this man to be healed. And then Peter does something interesting. He qualifies this statement by saying that this faith that they have is through Jesus. It's an interesting phrase. 
He says it's through Jesus. In other words, Peter does not say that his faith is extra powerful because he believes in Jesus. Rather, Peter says that his faith is extra powerful because it is through Jesus. It's from Jesus. So Jesus is not only providing the power for Peter to do these miracles, Jesus is also providing the faith to perform these miracles. And, And this again indicates that this miracle was in no way performed by the power of the flesh. This miracle was, was from start to finish, initiated by God, performed by God's power, delivered through the supernatural faith that God gives. And it's also interesting to note that this disabled man was healed not because of his faith, but because of Peter and John's faith. We don't know what this man truly believed about God or spirituality, but the passage doesn't say anything about his desire to be healed. He wasn't looking for that. It doesn't say that he had faith to be healed. Rather, the emphasis is entirely on powers at work outside of this man, on him. It is the faith of Peter and John that plays a role in this man's healing. And the reason I mention that is simply to encourage you and me as believers of Jesus that our prayers make a supernatural difference in the lives of others, okay? Regardless of what they believe about Jesus. Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and over earth, not them, and not you and me. Jesus is the one with authority. And so when we pray for others with faith in the power of Jesus, we can be confident that our prayers are powerful and effective in Jesus' name, even when we can't see obvious fruit of their effectiveness. And the fact that we call on Jesus' name in faith doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to do everything we ask him to do because this is the reality. We're flawed people, right? We don't see the big picture. We can't see everything God is doing. We don't have God's wisdom, but God's wisdom and his will we can trust are perfect. And that he is perfectly wise even though we are not. And that takes faith to believe that. But we can be sure that our prayers are being heard by God and that they are making an impact in the spiritual realm and in people's lives because that's what the power of Jesus does, okay? So when you and I pray, we ought to pray with faith. The Bible, the New Testament repeats this a lot. We, we ought to pray with faith in the power of Jesus Christ. Uh, we must Pray believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the author of life, that he does have all power in his hands. And at the same time, Jesus teaches that we need to pray in submission to him. We pray in submission to his will and his wisdom. That's the harder part, right? Because if we believe that Jesus does have the power to heal physically everybody in response to our prayers, then why doesn't he answer every prayer and relieve the terrible suffering of so many people? And this is why we need the faith that comes through Jesus that they're talking about here. Not only believe that Jesus can heal whomever he wants, whenever he wants, but also to believe that Jesus is working out his sovereign plans, he really is, for our ultimate joy and for his ultimate glory even when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to. We just don't know everything God's doing. But we can trust his character, and we can look at his track record, 
and see that he is trustworthy. And this is one of the weak points in the belief systems or theologies of so many Christians around the globe today. They do not make allowance for suffering in their theology, uh, in their beliefs about God. And much of that is because, I, I I would think, because either they're not reading what the Bible actually says, or because they're not reading the Bible correctly, or because they don't want to believe what the Bible says. Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world in how it understands suffering. We don't blame every instance of suffering and um, every seemingly unanswered prayer on a specific sin that we've done. We blame suffering on the sin of humanity in general, but we don't necessarily attribute a specific suffering a person must endure to something he or she did something did wrong. That's not, that's not what we do. Also, we don't believe we can get rid of sin and suffering on our own. If you look at all the religions of the world, everybody has this struggle with sin. Everybody has to wrestle with death. Everybody has to wrestle with suffering. The question is, how do we get out of it, right? Some religions teach if you just be a really, really good person, hopefully you will stop to exist. That's the best you can hope for. Others will think, well, if you be a really, really good person and do all these good works, hopefully you can be um, reincarnated into a more enlightened being after this life. Um, Realistically, truthfully, and experientially, this doesn't work. Boy, one of the, if, you, if you ever read a little short biography by Martin Luther, you should. And this is a great year to do that because we're celebrating the, the, the 500 years of the Reformation. This was a guy who, if anybody could be saved by works, it was this guy. I mean, he was incredible. He, would, he wore out the priests at the Catholic Church because he wanted to confess sin six hours a day. And they're like, I got to go get lunch, man. He would, he would stay, he would count, he would go up and down the steps and he would be praying and praying. It was never, ever, ever good enough. Boy, if Martin Luther couldn't be saved by, by his words, I don't have a shot. I don't have a shot. And that's why Jesus came, you guys, because we do not have a shot on our own. We need Jesus. Um, But the other faith systems of the world will say, you can do it if you work hard enough. You can get rid of the problem. You can get rid of suffering. You can get rid of sin. And we say, no, we can't. We need an alien power, something not in us, something outside of us to come in and free us from this bondage. And that's what the message of Jesus is, that he came in and broke us free because we can't do it on our own. And significantly, only in Christianity do you find the belief that the God who has power over all suffering actually endured all suffering for us, right? You don't hear about God's being humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, except in Christianity. But Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that means he can fully relate with every trial and temptation and worry and setback and emotion that we are feeling right now. It means that he suffered horrifically 
more than any person has ever suffered or will ever suffer because he suffered the eternal wrath of God toward every individual who belongs to his church. The eternal punishment, every individual deserves in that the wrath of God. Jesus suffered it all and he satisfied it all for his church. He suffered for us so that we won't suffer in eternity after this life. And at the same time, hear this, Jesus did not hide the fact that we will suffer in this life. Whether we're Christians, whether you're non-Christians, okay? Whether you do right, whether you do evil, all creation groans, all creation suffers as the consequence of humanity's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. But even in our suffering, Jesus graciously redeems it by not only taking our eternal suffering away from us, but in our temporary suffering, he's with us. He's present with us. He's, his Holy Spirit is here. To, he, what does he do? He encourages us. He's a comforter. And he promises he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus promises to help us pray in our suffering when we don't know what to pray. He says the Holy Spirit groans for us with groanings too deep for words. And more than that, Jesus promises, he promises us to work all things together for good for those that love God and who are called according to his purpose. It's a promise. And we're so thankful that the Holy Spirit who filled Peter and John is the same God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells Christians today. And, and at the same time, we must always remember that as God, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He has the same character and attributes as God the Father and God the Son. He's sovereign over everything. He's not a genie in a bottle, okay? We can't boss him around to do whenever, whatever we want, whenever we want. Holy Spirit, do this. Heal this person in Jesus' name. It's not, that's not the God of the Bible. God is sovereign. He's huge. And there are Christians today who teach that Christians have total authority and right to overcome all sicknesses and physical ailments in this life just by saying Jesus' name. And if you pray for healing in Jesus' name and you aren't healed from your sicknesses or physical ailments, then they'll say that you're either not a true Christian or you don't have the faith to be healed. It's your fault you're not healed. And so these teachers will then say, there must be something hidden in your life. There, there is something preventing God from healing you. You have a hidden sin that you haven't confessed yet, or you have an area in your life which you have not totally given to Jesus. That's why God's not answering your prayers. That's why he's against you. A few weeks ago, a certain televangelist stirred up quite a controversy when she told her audience that Jesus is their flu shot and that they must simply claim victory of, over the flu in Jesus' name, and then they won't get the flu. And you guys, this is, we have to know this. This is the gospel that America is exporting to most of the world. In third world countries, this is the message of Jesus they're hearing on TV. I just want you to see this short video so you can see it.
Listen, it's good to ask for healing as we trust in Jesus' name, but we have to understand what Jesus said. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. We're not in heaven yet. We pray for heavenly things to happen on earth, and yet we can't pretend that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are inoculated from pain and sickness during our earthly lives. Yes, we will be inoculated from pain and sickness after this life on earth, but not during this life on earth. Jesus never promised that. In fact, what you see in the Gospels over and over is him saying, you know what, I'm actually allowing this suffering in a person's life for their greater joy and for my greater glory. God filled Peter and John with the supernatural faith to heal that comes through Jesus. And we must pray that God would give us that same faith and we must never doubt. We've got to try. We struggle with doubt. but We don't want to pray with doubt. We want to trust that Jesus can heal whoever he wants, whenever he wants. I saw him do an incredible healing this week. Somebody was on his deathbed. Who is not, he's not a believer. But we came and prayed. and we uh, Sorry, I wasn't there physically, but I was praying as though I were there. and We had people praying. And suddenly, two days later, he's home. There's no physical explanation for this. God did a miracle, and we can't just say, oh, well, it must have been the medicine. No, God answered prayer. He healed this man. He's supposed to be dead, and now he's alive to live another day and hopefully trust in the Lord. Not everybody gets that grace. Not everybody gets that extra time to turn to the Lord. So we must pray that God would give us faith and at the same time we must not go to the opposite end of the spectrum and give false hope to people that Jesus never gives to us. Uh, We must never beat ourselves over the head or uh, as the definite cause of specific sufferings and ailments. Yes, confess your sins to the Lord, but do not live in fear of some secret unconfessed sin that you've forgotten about. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Ask him to help you examine your heart. Because he does say that there are sicknesses attributed to sickness. We're not, we're, uh, some sicknesses attributed to sin. And so as the Holy Spirit leads us, we confess sin, right? But this has been warped in a way where it's like, it's a fearful thing. As though, oh, you messed up. Your brain's not working right. You can't remember all those sins. That's why you're not being healed. That's baloney. Jesus loves you. In Christ, he died for you. He's for you, the Bible says. He died to save you and to put to death your suffering on the cross. That you will not suffer in eternity because Jesus suffered it. However, we will have tastes of it on earth. But this is the closest taste of hell you will ever have because of Jesus. And now I want to remind you of the fourth and final explanation that the text gives us for Peter and John's ability to heal this man. Peter and John were supernaturally prompted by God to heal this specific man on this specific day at this specific place. The Holy Spirit prompted Peter and John to pay attention to this man, to call out to him, to declare healing for this man in Jesus' name. This wasn't something that Peter and John did every day. We need to know that. That when we read the Bible, we're reading about extraordinary things that happened. It doesn't talk about 
days, weeks of time in their lives where they're just normal guys living life, right? We see these were extraordinary things. Again, in the words of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the apostles never made an announcement that they would work miracles on such and such a day. They never put up a poster and said, come on Thursday, there's going to be miracles performed. Never. Why not? He says there's only one answer, because they never knew when it was going to happen. What clearly happened was that they were suddenly confronted by a situation, and the commission from above was given to them. And when he explains to the crowd how this lame man came to be healed, Peter says that it had nothing to do with his or John's own piety. On the contrary, it had everything to do with who Jesus is. Jesus truly is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is the author of life. He is the creator of all things. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah who suffered for the sins and sicknesses of his church so that one day his church might not suffer anymore. Jesus is the glorified Son of God the Father. And he's the most powerful being in the universe. He's the same one sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. He's the same one who lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. And we, we pray to him. He tells us, come to me, pray to me. Draw near to me. And we thank him for who he is. We thank you for what he's done for us. And we, we want to pray to him with faith, believing that he does have power that is unimaginable to do that everything, everything that he wants and wills according to his perfect wisdom. We pray to him with faith, and we believe that he's at work in our lives, in our world, we believe that he cares not only about the massive events and trials that are happening around us, but he is an imminent God. He's near to us. He, he cares about the private and small things in our lives. We pray that he would wash again over us in our church in new ways with more power, and that according to his sovereign will and his great power, he would do wonders among us, because he can. And he does. And for every good gift that he gives to us, may we never take them for granted, but may we remember to thank him for them and then to give him all the praise and glory that is due to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, God, and just thank you that we can come to you on the grounds of your faithfulness um, and on the grounds of your sin-bearing and sin-killing work for us and on the grounds of your resurrection and power. And we do not come to you in confidence of who we are or what we have done. Thank you that you're so gracious to us that even, um, even in our suffering on earth, um, you don't just tell us, well, just wait, wait, wait. Just try to be strong and then get to heaven. You tell us, I'm with you in your weakness. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. You help us to pray. You give us strength. You uphold us with your righteous right hand. You help us. God, may we have faith to trust that. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are going through physical suffering and physical pain and physical loss and who are praying and who are having a difficult time because their prayers aren't being answered the way that they would like them to be answered. And I just pray that you would give them faith. Give all of us faith. Give us courage. Give us hope in you, Jesus. 
Give us supernatural strength that isn't in us. Give us this faith that is through Jesus, that's from you. We need that. I thank you, God, that you are not only the author of life, but that you're author of our faith and that you will bring it to completion, that our faith is in your hands and that it rests in your power and your grace towards us. Please, God, help us to trust you in our weakness, to depend totally on you, to thank you for the evidences of grace and work we see in your lives. And please use us to shine your light to those who don't know you. Help us love others like you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.